0: Hi all, and welcome to Thermonuclear Takes. Regular listeners to the show will know that this is our occasional format experiment where I go a little bit off script and talk about some of the breaking news in science and technology. Because of that, it'll be more timely, although hopefully always relevant, and unlike episodes on historical physics, most of which has been confirmed as true for decades, a lot of what I say won't have been confirmed as true for decades, so things might have changed on some or all of the stories by the time you hear them. Since I'm also turning around this episode in a few hours, there's a slightly higher chance than usual that I'll make mistakes, but I think the new format is a fun way to discuss stuff in the news that relates to our themes in close to real time, so let's go. This episode we're going to be talking about one of the stories that really made me want to produce this kind of episode, it's the CRISPR baby story. As you'll probably remember from our interview with Brit Ray, or our episode on bioengineered super viruses, and go back and listen if you don't remember them. CRISPR is this next generation gene editing technology. It uses the self-defense mechanism of bacteria, which can create enzymes that can very quickly locate and snip strands of DNA against them as a way of editing genetic code. Bacteria use it for self-defense to snip the DNA of the viruses that invade them, but we can use it to edit genes. It's faster, cheaper and more flexible than other methods that have been discovered so far. And after all, as you often find, the evolution of these natural bacteria has optimised a better solution to this specific problem than anything humans can engineer in the lab by themselves. But it's the question of engineering humans that has everyone in a real tizzy. Preliminary studies have suggested that it could potentially be used for therapeutic purposes. Now, there's hype surrounding this. It's so intense, in fact, that the US-based CRISPR therapeutics company is already worth $3 billion, despite not having demonstrated any successful product that can be used by humans, or even without being cleared by the government. To carry out any major clinical trials. But early results have shown some promise in treating Huntington's disease and ALS in mice by using CRISPR proteins on living adult mice. The real power of the technique though would arise in editing the genome of animals before they're born. Instead of screening for certain genetically inherited disorders in embryos, we could literally change the genome of the embryo, curing the disease. There are some conditions where the genetic foundation is well understood, So there are some illnesses that are monogenic they are caused by a single gene, like sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis, polycystic kidney disease, and Tay-Sachs disease, which are all caused by mutations in a single gene. And so these would be quite fruitful for CRISPR to target. Similarly, you can imagine it being useful for genetically modified crops, which may well be the next green revolution required to feed the world's population. In many ways, you can sort of argue that this is accelerating what's already being done with selective breeding, where, after all, we are favourably breeding plants based on the genetic material that they have. But uses in animals can go beyond this. Using a technique known as gene drive, scientists can create traits that are always inherited by the offspring. This means you can ensure that the new genetic change eventually spreads through a whole population, because there's no chance that it's not inherited. Imagine taking a male mosquito and altering a gene that controls egg laying so that the females can no longer lay eggs. As the male mosquito and its male descendants spread this gene to the rest of the population through this gene drive that forces them to inherit this trait, eventually it spreads through the entire population. Then all the females that are born will be infertile and the mosquito population will die out. If you think that sounds like science fiction, it's already happened in the lab. Back in September, a paper published in Nature Biotechnology reported that it took just eight generations for the lab-based population of mosquitoes to die out completely. Now we don't know that that would necessarily work the same in the wild because there are caveats like for example uh, the way that mosquitoes swarm when they mate in the wild and of course it's a much larger base population but of course one can imagine that if this kind of technique actually works in the wild and could spread through an entire population you might use it to cure malaria creating mosquitoes that can't pass on the disease that kills a million people a year Or, alternatively, some Bond villain could release a hive full of gene-drive bees that would wreak havoc on ecosystems and wipe out the bee population, creating a real-life sci-fi dystopia. We're still at the stage with this technology where we don't really know whether these ideas are feasible or fantasies yet, and that's what's so exciting and terrifying about it. But again, there are lots of people looking into this. Already companies are being spun out from universities, and the Bill Gates Foundation has ploughed $75 million into gene drives with the goal of eliminating malaria. In this sense, CRISPR is in the category we spend so much time talking about, technology that might change or break the world, or maybe overhyped, but if it does work as intended, may change or break the world. But that's the kind of thing we need to consider the implications of now, before it's ubiquitous. In some ways with CRISPR we've learned to read and write before we've learned the language of genetics. The fear of designer babies, where we might genetically engineer these perfect humans who are more intelligent, physically stronger and so on. Well, it seems a long way off. Because we simply don't understand the full links between someone's genetics and complex traits like intelligence or personality. We don't even fully understand the links between genetics and things like eye or hair colour. People couldn't write you a human genome that would guarantee that you got blue eyes. Unless you were cloning someone who already had them. The human genome, after all, is not a series of simple switches where you switch different traits on and off, but this enigma of interacting parts that we've barely even started to decode. But if we can decode it, the potential for people to try to edit the human genome for virtually any reason is there, and it's real. Again, it seems distant now, but does anyone really believe, barring apocalyptic events, if technology keeps progressing as it has done, within a few centuries we'll have started to try and create designer humans of one form or another? We're already very used to messing around with the genetics of animals, whether through this new technology or whether through traditional means. After all, do you think that prehistoric wolf descendant that's always so pleased to see you became so fluffy and obedient without serious human intervention somewhere along the way? But this idea that we might take control of our own evolution that we might seek to accelerate it in new and strange directions, and that those directions would depend on the flawed judgement of humanity. It's still a very scary one. And here, of course, is where CRISPR gene editing falls into the strange, legal and ethical limbo associated with human cloning. Human cloning has been banned by 70 countries, but not internationally. The UN attempted to ban it when it first became feasible back in 2001-2002, but the talks ended up deadlocked, so there's no international rule on this. Incidentally, I had to share this with you. In the course of looking into human cloning, I found perhaps the best ever twist in a scientific news story, from the reputable New Scientist magazine, no less, back in 2002. The story goes quote, The world's first cloned baby was born on 26th December, claims the Bahamas-based cloning company Clonade, but there has been no independent confirmation of the claim. The girl, named Eve by the cloning team, was said to have been born by Caesarean section at 1155 EST. The birth at an undisclosed location went very well, said Bridget Bossielia, president of CloneAid. The company was founded in 1997 by the Raelian Cult, which believes people are clones of aliens. So yeah, that story wasn't true. Waiting until the second paragraph to hit you with the alien clone twist is really cruel in my view. And indeed there have been reports that it's harder to clone some more complex mammals and primates than it was to clone Dolly the Sheep, a sheep that was cloned back in 1996. But since then we've cloned monkeys and complex primates, and it seems likely that if there was a concerted international effort to clone humans, we could have done it easily by now. But for this combination of scientific, ethical, and commercial reasons, it never happened. Using CRISPR on humans specifically to create genetically modified humans, rather than using it to treat illnesses in already born humans, has sat in that strange ethical limbo, not technically illegal everywhere, but not attempted by most scientists, until a few days ago. MIT Tech Review reported that a scientist from China, He Zhuangui, has been recruiting for a project called Safety and Validity Evaluation of HIV Immune Gene CCR5 Gene Editing in Human Embryos. He's been looking for couples who will have an IVF baby where CRISPR has been used to eliminate a gene called CCR5, one that's been linked to various diseases. The hope is that the babies will have heightened resistance to HIV, smallpox and cholera. According to data submitted with the project report that's now online and publicly available, tests have been carried out on fetuses as old as 24 weeks, 6 months. So that's old enough where premature babies have a decent chance of survival if given proper care. And according to the Associated Press and a promotional video, released by He describing the project, which you can watch on YouTube, twin baby girls, Lulu and Nana, were born, who have had this gene edit. The video claims that the babies had their genome sequenced after they were born, and while they were still in the womb, and this is confirmed that nothing was altered, The CRISPR, with its impeccable evolutionary precision, appears to have just removed the single CCR5 gene. But this is the first time it has ever been done on an embryo that was carried to term. So it was controversial even when it was used on human cells for the first time in the lab back in 2015. But here we are. If this reporting is correct, there are human gene-edited babies who have now been born. There are some things to point out. The CCR5 gene variant is one that occurs naturally in humans. Around 100 million people are lucky enough to be without this gene, and that's how we know that it's linked to this strong resistance to initial HIV infection. So of course one could argue that all the scientists have done is use technology to load the dice to confer an advantageous mutation on these babies that might have happened anyway. And of course at this stage it's just a single edit and it's just attempting to boost resistance to diseases. If you have IVF, The typical procedure is you have many embryos, and many genetically inherited diseases can be and are prevented just by screening them, just by looking through the genome and seeing whether they have these particular mutations, without needing to use CRISPR at all. So you can argue that what's been achieved here, by actively editing an embryo rather than just selecting the best embryo, is not hugely different in terms of the end result. But that's really not the point. Now, this study hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, so it may well all fall apart, and that happens fairly often in science when stuff hasn't been subject to proper peer review, and sometimes even when it has. But if it does pan out to be accurate, this reporting, then the Rubicon has been crossed now, and the first genetically modified humans have now been born. MIT Tech Review notes that this comes at an auspicious time. They say, quote, the claim that China has already made genetically altered humans comes just as the world's leading experts are jetting into Hong Kong for the second international summit on human genome editing. The technology is ethically charged because changes to an embryo would be inherited by future generations, and could eventually affect the entire gene pool. Quote, we have never done anything that will change the genes of the human race, and we have never done anything before that will have effects that go on through the generations said David Baltimore, a biologist and former president of the California Institute of Technology. He said that in a pre-recorded message ahead of the event, which begins on Tuesday, November the 27th, which is a few days ago when you hear this. It appears that the organisers of the summit were also kept in the dark about his plans. Another interesting tidbit is that he himself, like many scientists who work in the area, owns part of a company that's hoping to commercialise the technology in the future. A further interesting tidbit via AP It appears that the key scientists involved in the study are physics experts without much experience administering long-term human trials, and of course here the consequences of the gene edit could well follow these children around for the rest of their lives, depending on whether it's successful or not. And of course no one, no one at all, has long-term experience in long-term trials of gene editing on humans, because it's never happened before. So there are some important caveats before we start declaring ourselves well into the age of edited humans, or even a brand new tailored human species. So as I said it's not been peer-reviewed. Experts who've looked at the documents can only say so far that this is clearly an effort to produce an edited human and that we only have the word of the scientists concerned that the effort really was a successful one. Genetic editing of a human embryo can create what's called a mosaic where some cells are edited and some cells are unedited and data from the Chinese website reports that one of the embryos they've tested is in this condition. So this has been discovered in previous CRISPR tests on embryos that weren't then allowed to be born. The principal concern with CRISPR editing an embryo like this is that it might introduce an off-target edit, which could cause cancerous mutations, potentially. But this mosaic problem is not that. It was discovered back in 2017 when some of the first embryo edits were attempted. The scientists try to avoid it by injecting CRISPR when the embryo is just a single cell. But it seems like that, at least in some of the embryos, the cells manage to divide or replicate that segment of the DNA before CRISPR has a chance to make the edit. This gives you a resulting embryo that is a mixture of edited and unedited cells. So the problem with this mosaic thing is that it's not just whatever edit you were trying to do hasn't worked, but also whatever genome sequencing or tests you subsequently do to test that there were no damaging mutations elsewhere might not be reliable, because after all they might not apply to all cells, and so there could be a damaging mutation somewhere else and you wouldn't necessarily know about it. There are techniques that have been used on monkeys that have reduced the levels of this mosaicism, but I think it's fair to say yet that it's just an example of how we don't know what the consequences of using CRISPR will be, and this is an example of something unexpected and did go wrong in previous studies. And while it might not stop CRISPR from ever being useful, it's one of a number of major concerns about the new technology. And since this is the first time this has ever been attempted, there are unknown unknowns, surely, especially in terms of the long-term outcome for these babies. So what has the scientific community made of this experiment? Well, most scientists are hedging their bets because it hasn't even been published in a peer-reviewed journal yet. Now, as I speak about this, I heard a news report just this morning where the, he, the main scientist, has spoken at this conference that he was about to be attending, and they've said that this journal will, that this will be published in a peer-reviewed journal, but they don't know what journal yet, so it clearly hasn't been peer-reviewed at this stage. But it will likely be weeks or even months before this is independently verified. In addition to this, they've talked about these two girls that have been born, no one's seen them yet, and no one necessarily knows where they are or who the identity of the parents are, so there are other details about this that we're not sure about. But here are some of the comments that were quoted in the AP article about it. Some scientists were astounded to hear of the claim, and strongly condemned it. It's unconscionable, an experiment on human beings that is not morally or ethically defensible, said Dr. Kieran Musunuru, a University of Pennsylvania gene editing expert and editor of a genetics journal. This is far too premature, said Dr. Eric Topol, who heads the Scripps Research Translational Institute in California. We're dealing with the operating instructions of a human being. It's a big deal. However, one famed geneticist, Harvard University's George Church, defended attempting gene editing for HIV, which he called a major and growing public health threat. I think this is justifiable, Church said, of that goal. He himself has said, I believe that this is going to help the families or children. If it causes unwanted side effects or harm, I would feel the same pain as they do, and it's going to be my own responsibility. Several scientists who have reviewed the materials that he has provided to the Associated Press have said that the tests conducted so far are insufficient to say that the editing worked or that it hasn't caused any harm. So another controversial aspect of this particular study arises from the type of edit that was performed. After all, here you're not actually treating a disease or curing a condition using CRISPR. If you succeed, you're producing a baby with a genetic advantage, one that's less likely to fall ill. You might argue that because this genetic advantage is one that some populations, especially in Europe, already have, It's not so bad, because you're just giving natural evolution a helping hand. There was always some small probability that this would have occurred anyway. But it's pretty close to the boundary between strictly using CRISPR to treat or cure diseases, which most people agree with, versus using CRISPR to enhance people, giving them favourable characteristics. I am not a bioethicist, and I think it's important in doing this show to point out when I'm talking about things that I don't have any particular expertise in. There are many, many people infinitely smarter than me who devote their lives and careers to studying this kind of technology, what could be right or wrong about it, how to consider the moral, ethical implications of what's happening, and studies that can happen in the future. And someday, hopefully, when I'm not in breaking news mode, I'll get a chance to really research that and we can bring you a great episode that fully dives into some of the ethical implications of CRISPR and this kind of technology. But what's clear to me is that this kind of study isn't going away. Even if this particular experiment turns out to be exaggerated or incorrect, unless perhaps it turns out to be a catastrophe, I think it's inevitable that this will eventually, one way or another, become more and more acceptable. 60% of people surveyed in the US and China already support CRISPR gene editing if it's done to cure or treat diseases. If that works, and if it's done for a few decades, the lines will start to blur between curing diseases and making people healthier in other ways, I mean, this experiment is already an example of how that can happen with genetics. You're not curing a disease, but you're optimising a person so that they're less likely to get it. If we can start to unpick and decode the genetic origins of certain traits like intelligence, don't you think someone, somewhere, is going to try to do this, even if it turns out to be very difficult to succeed? The incentive structure in place in our society, this rampant techno-optimism that we all have to subscribe to, and the profit motive, and there will be one, will drive us further in this direction. And I'm not sure, when those things are in place, that purely ethical concerns will stop us. The technology is here, so we have to start thinking about the morality, the policy, the consequences, and the implications now. Or they'll be here, faster than we can do anything about it. Okay, that's probably enough for this episode. Sorry we didn't get to cover some more stories, but you know, there's one way you can help us and help me cover more stories. We have a Patreon account. The last episode on this feed was the first two parts on free energy scams. You can get the second part on Patreon by visiting www.patreon.com slash physicalattraction, or by donating to the PayPal link $2 at physicspodcast.com. And if you do that, you will get access to the second part of the free energy scams episode, where you'll hear more about the various ways people have tried to con you out of your money, and the incredible story of how Irish company Storn got millions of euros worth of investment in a battery that claimed to recharge itself with no external power source. It's truly one of the most astonishing stories I think I've ever read about. Some notes on the future of the show. We'll finish up the thermodynamics series after this, and then, as the year draws to a close, I have a couple of great interviews to bring you. One is with Amy Westervelt, the creator of the amazing podcast Drilled, which details how climate change denial has been constructed by fossil fuel companies over time. Drilled is all available now on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can go and listen to it, and you'll be ready for us to discuss all of the fascinating issues that it throws up. The other interview I have is with Karen Culliman, where we discussed another ethically fascinating topic, the concerns about overpopulation. Is overpopulation a problem? Is it an environmental scapegoat? And if you decide it's a problem, how can we deal with it in a morally sound way? It was a really fascinating conversation that I hope I'll bring to you before the end of the year. Then in 2019, we're going to be launching our series on nuclear fusion, And this is really unlike anything the show has done since the era of the Teot-Wauke specials. I like to do series because I like to get involved in explaining topics in depth if I can, but this is going to be uh, bigger in scope and scale than any of the little series that we've had so far about things like Newton and uh, thermodynamics and particle physics and so on. It's going to be a comprehensive history of nuclear fusion, from the discovery of the nucleus through to the hydrogen bomb to tokamaks and fusion reactors and ITER, it spans a century, we'll meet some fascinating characters, and learn about some fiendishly complicated physics. We'll talk about historical developments, lasers, Soviet Russia, plasmas, kinky instabilities, the porn baron who attempted to create a nuclear fusion reactor with his spare money, and the energy source that's often described as the saving grace for the human race. Hopefully there will also be some more fascinating interviews, and maybe some more news episodes if I get the chance along the way. Cue the sad music. Physical Attraction and its sister podcast, Autocracy Now, which has just started a series on the 1920s Louisiana Senator and populist demagogue Huey P. Long, are a solo project by me. They both lose money, and take up most weekends I might dream of having, and plenty of evenings too. But I do this, of course, because I love to think about these things, to write about them, to talk about them, and share them with you. So if you can appreciate the shows even just a little bit, or if you think they can be improved, your feedback means the world. You can contact me via the contact form at physicspodcast.com, via Twitter at physicspod, on Facebook at the Physical Attraction page, emailing physicspod at outlook.com. There's really no excuse because we have about 10,000 different ways to get in touch with us. And those who've done so will say I have a pretty good response rate to all of your comments, questions or concerns. If there are any show topics that you'd love to hear or learn more about, let me know and I'll get to researching them. If there are people you'd like me to try to interview, that would be great to hear as well. As always, beyond just purchasing the bonus episodes from past shows, the best thing you can really do to help us out is to tell as many people as possible who might be interested. Spread the word about the show if you enjoy it, because the more people listen, the more it feels worthwhile. And if anyone wants the special physical attraction postcards, I've got a whole stack of them sitting on my desk right now, Uh, you can send me your address and I'll send you some of those, and you know, you can use them for Christmas cards or whatever you like, I guess. And finally, after all the begging, thank you so much for listening. Without that, it would just be me rambling endlessly at the wall, and while I might do it anyway, it wouldn't be nearly as fun. Until next time, and the third and final law of thermodynamics, take care and be kind to each other.